this world that is incomplete. There's no trees, bushes, agriculture, or really anything beauty, uh, beautiful. And its name was Philly. Okay, okay, okay. It's a little harsh on Eden. wasn't that bad. Um, but you get this idea that this, this land was barren. Like, it had, it had potential, but it was barren. And we're going to see later what this potential actually was. And we're also going to see that this land has everything it needed it to, for it to flourish. But it was barren. And, and you're like, okay, well, why is it barren? Well, luckily for us, they give us an answer of why it was barren. And it is in verse 7. Or no, it doesn't say seven gives us the answer. But it was barren because the Lord had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. All right, so we got this issue. We got this barren land. There's no rain. There's no man. What are we going to do? God gives an answer, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The man became a living being. So our first point for today, and we only have two. I figured, you know, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a new preacher, you might as well stay short, right? Um, so first point is you are uniquely made and valuable. You're uniquely made and value, valued. I don't know what I put up here, actually. Yeah, valued. Okay. You are uniquely made and valued. Now, the Hebrew reading this, who if they, the Hebrews at the time, first century Jews, Jews, reading this would have seen this as God as the master artesian who is sculpting and shaping. They would have seen this as God as the master artesian who is sculpting and shaping. And we get that because of the word formed. Formed, and it's Hebrew word, and man, if you know Hebrew, I am so sorry, but it's called yetzar. Not sure if that's right, but that's how it's spelled. Yetzar is used to describe a potter's activity. So you see, this, uses, this word is used in other areas, like in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I think the best instance is in Jeremiah, when uh, he, the Lord is looking at this potter with clay, and he's forming it and making it and shaping it into something great, and he turns... Um, and he turns and he says, Israel, can't I do the same with you? Essentially, like, can't I make you and form you and sculpt you into something great? So when you get this idea of forming, like he's forming us out of the dust of the ground, you get this idea of careful, loving precision. When, the, when God formed man, it was through careful, loving, caring precision. And now, for me, this is a little bit tough to... Uh, I guess, put myself behind because I am not an artist. We're going to see in a little bit. I have a whiteboard. Woof. It's bad. Um, but uh, the only thing I can really shape is like, I don't know if you've been, well, I'm hoping most of you have been to the beach, is you get this like wet mud and you do a little drippy drip and it creates this little droopy little castle. But you got to be careful because you go a little to the right, a little to the left, comes crumbling down. That's about as much artistic abilities I got, and, but it has a little bit of precision. Um, and since I don't have a good example of what, you know, this idea of sculpting and shaping, uh, luckily, Scripture is full of language of this idea of being formed, formed, uh, sculpted, created with care and purpose and love. So Psalm 119, 13 and 14, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. 
Psalm 119.73, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Job 10.8, your hands shaped me, made me. Isaiah 44.24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I'm the Lord who has made all things. Psalm 103, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So you get this idea that the Lord is using his hands to shape us and mold us into something from essentially nothing. Dust is like the closest thing to nothing. At least I think so. I mean, it's, I mean, it's down there. Um, and we're going to see later of like this play on words of, you know, created from dust, to dust you will form, or to dust you will return. And it's incredible, and I love this idea of God sculpting something and working with his hands, this, this imagery that I get. He's working with his hands to create something, because up until this point, the Lord has spoken everything out of his mouth. He says, it has come into be. He's just said, and it was. But here, we get man. And he's got dust, and he's forming, and he's sculpting, and he's creating, and he's making something new and valuable and precious. Now, while this is, like for me when I think of this, like, man, God's shaping us and, and making us in, in our mother's womb and all this, um, the question remains, okay, well, God made animals. We're going to see next week in 2.19, he made animals from the ground. So the question begs to differ. What makes us different from an animal? And I love our little Rella puppy, little psycho girl. Um, I love her, and she's great, but we are definitely not the same. And uh, thank God, because she's the worst. Um, but, but really, um, what, makes us di- what makes us different? What makes us different than our dogs, our cats, our hamsters? I don't know. Uh, what makes us different than all these other animals? And it's, we need to remember that we are first created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God, in his likeness. So when God was forming and sculpting and making Adam in the ground, he said, let us make him in our image. He didn't say this about Rella. He didn't say this about anyone, any other creature. He said, let us make man, Adam, in our image. We are his image bearers, and he sculpted us with him in mind. Which is why... We get the sense of, um, I think it was uh, Martin Luther. I got this quote from a quote. <laughs> but this idea, I think it was Luther who said, you get this idea of it's gradually formed. When he made man, it was gradually formed. But when he makes animals, it's all of a sudden burst out of the ground. There you go. But with man, it was careful, carefully, um, carefully made. Another important aspect of God forming man is that he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. He breathed the breath of life into his, no- in his nostrils. Now, in a covert world, this probably makes a lot of people shudder. I mean, shoot. In a non-covert world, if Andrew comes up to me and starts breathing in my nostrils, I'm going to be freaked out, and Drew and Brian are going to have a little conversation with them. Um, <laughs> but you get the sense of... What God is doing here, you get the sense of what God is doing here when he's breathing life into the nostrils of Adam, into man, that is deeply personal. What he's doing here is deeply personal. It's like the the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss, close and careful and loving. 
And this is a physical example in Scripture of the idea that the breath of God and the Spirit of God is what gives us life and sustains us. This is like the physical example that is the breath of God and the Spirit of God that gives us life and sustains us. And and, uh, Drew talked about this a few weeks ago, this idea of what's so beautiful about being made in the image of God and breath into our nostrils, being made in his image, is that we didn't do anything, and yet we were valuable. It's not what we do that makes us valuable. And that's something I have to tell myself constantly. Something that, you know, people in my DNA, MC, they have to tell me constantly. We're just such in this mindset of what we do is what, why we're valuable. But you see right from the beginning here, we are valuable because God has made us and he has made us in his image. So you are uniquely made and valued. You are uniquely made and valued. Point number two is you are uniquely placed and called. You are uniquely placed and called. Genesis 2, 8 through 15 I'm not going to read it all because we pretty much just read it all. But um, I'm going to read at least 8 and 9. The Lord God planted in the Garden of Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God uh, caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, I feel like I need to uh, clarify something here. We just got done talking about like, hey, just barren wastelands like Philly. But now it's this lush area of trees, everything growing. <laughs> What's the deal? I'm a little confused. So as you can probably tell, I'm hanging out with Brian and Drew too much. So whiteboard time. Um, and, oh, and as a, and preacher's down. Um, so You're really about to see my art abilities. Okay. Um, You got the land. We're just going to say this is the land of Eden. And it's barren. But, you know, there's rivers. There's rivers under the ground. And it's, you know, there's nothing there, but it has potential. And we see also later in 10 through 14, this idea that there's minerals, like gold and onks and bdellium and all these things that are used to create life and flourish. What's lacking is man. But what God does is in the east, he plants a garden. Now, this isn't to scale, so don't quote me. Um, so he plants this garden, and this is where he sticks Adam. And this is the area where typically is where we get our pictures of what Eden was like. But all oh, this is Eden, and this is the garden. And he places man in the garden in Eden, in the east. Um, so I hope that gives you a little bit better of a picture. Wow, that is bad. Woof. Um, so he places them in this garden that is full of resources. It's full of good, good things. Every true is good to eat and it's pleasing to look at. Um, Andy Crouch, I'm quoting from a book called Culture Making. And I can't believe I'm doing that because it's been sitting on my shelf for like four years and Drew has been trying to get me to read it and here I am quoting it. So I'm a little upset with myself. Um, Andy Crouch says this in his book, Culture Making. God has seeded the world, as it were, with cultural goods. Adam is not set, set to start work carving on a non-existent garden, but out, uh, not a non-existent garden out of the wilderness. But from the beginning, he benefits from the creator's own cultural initiative. He benefits from his own cultural initiative. So essentially what he's saying is, hey, in other words, 
The Lord set up this garden for Adam to work out of. Man, it would have been really hard for uh, Adam to start over here and work. Like, yes, it was made to be cultivated and flourished, but he started right from, like, God cultivated something, and he did something, and he worked, and he put Adam in the, out of this place of flourishing. And Adam was supposed to work out of that garden and make the rest of Eden like this garden. So he didn't set him up for failure. The Lord worked alongside him and created this garden for Adam to work out of. Now we're going to get to this idea of work in a little bit. Um, but a few things I want to I point out is that, one, we realize here when it says in... Um, Yes, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life. Um, so what we see here is God isn't stingy. This might be a hot take, but I feel like this is something a lot of Christians need to hear. God's not stingy, so neither should we. Not the point of the passage, but here we go. Um, not stingy. He could have just been like, hey, Adam, here's your... Uh, Here's the garden with a single apple tree, and the apple tree is mushy. Some, not crisp apples, it's mushy apples. He could have done that and put them in this garden, which is a single tree, work from that. But no, he goes in and he makes this beautiful garden full of trees and life and everything that's good and pleasing to the eye. Which brings me to a second thing you notice here, is that the author brings to attention how first it is pleasing to the eye, and then it's good for food. Pleasing to the eye, and then good for food, uh, good for f- uh, fruit and food. But really, all this is is just further evidence that we serve a God who is one of create- creativity, beauty, and design, and not just some deity who's uninvolved. He cares about beauty, design, order, and making something beautiful of this world, which takes us to the idea of, so God is this person. He's made this garden, and he's made it wonderful, beautiful, bountiful, yet also beautiful. It wasn't just for, you know, food, but it was also beautiful, good to look at. So we, we need to remember that we're image bearers. So if we're image bearers, and if we're God's image bearers, and he is the one who is cultivating, creating, and making life to flourish, what does that say about us and what we should do? Well, that's where we get to verse 15. And it says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Now, there are a few words I want to really take a look at here, um, these key ideas to get a better idea of what it means, what this verse means. And it's to work um, and to watch over it, or your version might say take care of. So we're going to look at work it and to take care of it. The word work is translated from abad, which essentially means to work. Gives this idea of tilling the soil or cultivating, doing something, um, creating something. And to watch over it, or um, what yours might say is take care of it, is translated from shamar, which usually is translated as take care of it. Take care of it. It means to watch over, protect, guard, police, stand over, like stand guard and make sure this flourishes. So in other words... When God is telling Adam right here, go work and to take care of it, he's saying, Adam, go cultivate something, make something that is life-giving. Go do and make something that is life-giving. And this shouldn't be, this idea shouldn't have been difficult to Adam, and it shouldn't really be difficult to us, 
Because what God is asking Adam to do, and he's what he's asking us to do, is not something that is absolutely fundamentally different. But rather, he's asking us to imitate him as image bearers. He's asking us to do something that he has already done. This is something God has done. He has created, and he has cultivated, and he is taken care of. Go do the same. Go be my image bearers. This is who we are. I have created you to be this way. The first, so we're image bearers. And the image we bear, the image we are bearing is of the first gardener. It's of the first culture maker. Tim Keller has this great quote on, on this and this idea of what work is and what it looks like. Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Now, I love this idea because this is found in all sorts of ideas of work. All this, this idea of what work is is found in all sorts of ideas. So, for example, you get this builder. You got this builder. He's taking stone, you know, brick, wood, all these different things, and he's making a house for families to grow up and to play in, to have fun in, to make memories in. You get a musician who's got all these wacky notes that by themselves sound, eh, 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 whatever, but it makes them together, and you got this beautiful melody and song that stirs the affections of the soul. Or you get a teacher who takes these complex ideas and makes them simple for a student to understand. And he, so it's this idea of drawing out something's potential. When you're working, you are drawing out something's potential, and that is cultivation, and that is what work is. But what I also love is that it doesn't just refer to your career. Wow, for a lot of you, I know, you are, your work is cultivating, like your career is working and cultivating and doing all of these things, but for a lot of people, some people don't have careers. But that's okay, because this permeates all aspects of our life, what it means to work. I think a great example of this are mothers. Mothers are a great example of this. I hate how our culture makes it seem like, oh, like, oh, I'm just this, you know, stay-at-home mom or something like that. Like, I hate that. Mom, I mean, if anything is the definition of a raw material, it's a buckwild child. Um, and, and moms have this, have this job to cultivate this child, cultivate their heart, those small hearts and souls uh, to the love of God. What an incredible um, opportunity that we get and purpose um, that this permeates all aspect of our life. Another a- way it aspects or it affects all of our life um, is this idea that work is worship. And we know this because the Hebrew word abad is used in Leviticus, Exodus, and working in the temple and other aspects of worship to God. It's the same exact Hebrew The word that Abad used in Genesis 2 is also used as worship in a priestly manner. So what we do is how we work in a life-flourishing way is worship. Um, We were talking this morning about it, and I thought, classic Brian, just making dad jokes. He's like, it's called worship. And I apparently stole it from someone else. but, uh, But I thought that was a great idea because the idea of work and worship are tied at the hip. So man, how much more value does that give to what we do? Because what we are doing is worship to God, which is then further evidence of that everything we do, whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. Because what we do in how we work is worship. What we matters do, what we uh, do matters because work is worship. 
And my favorite part about this is that we are not alone in this effort. This idea of working, cultivating, doing all this stuff for the human flourishing, we are not alone in this. We are not alone in this, and we know this because the, one of the main parts of being an image bearer of God, one of the main parts of being in the image of God is that we are partners with him. I don't remember what I put up here. Yeah, being the image of God means we are partnering with God. Being an image of God means we are partnering with God. So, well, okay, well, why is this? Well, you look at verse 5 and 6, you get this, you know, wilderness of a land. It's like, oh, well, you know, there's no man to work it. Do we really think God needed man to make life flourish? Like, he couldn't just, that little garden he made, he couldn't just do that everywhere. No, he could have, but he decides, no, I want man involved. I want man involved. I want to partner with him in this process of growing Eden and making it something that is great and uh, uh, abundant and beautiful and all of this. And, or we see later in, uh, I think it's two, which you'll also talk about next week, when he'd go, he, asked, he tells Adam to name the animals. Like, God couldn't name a camel, tiger, lion, bear. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't name these things himself? No. He could, but he wants to come alongside us. He wants us to come alongside him and partner with him in this idea of culture making and making things new. John Mark Comer says this, the garden was dynamic, not static. Creation was a project, not a product. The garden was designed to go somewhere. And this is where we get this idea of the garden being a little misconstrued. We think it was already perfect. No, it wasn't perfect. It was good, but perfect, good isn't perfect. No, he created this to cultivate, to make it something new and better. These materials you have, go make something of it. Go work it. Go take care of it. Do something that is grand. And God wants to build something with us. He wants to share in this cultivation of making things new with us. And not only do we see this here, this is like considered in Genesis 1-2, this idea of a cultural mandate, of making, you know, making something of the world, we also see it in the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Go make disciples, and I am with you even until the end of the age. You don't just say, go make disciples, and you're on your own. No, go make disciples, I am with you even until the end of the age. And Paul later, in 1 Corinthians... Uh, brings us all first, uh, full circle. And this is where it kind of blew my mind of, wow, the Bible really is one cohesive story. <laughs> Who would have thought? First um, Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only the God who gives the growth. Now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. Now first, this idea of watering, growing, planting, this is all garden imagery. This is all garden imagery and something first-generation Jews would have definitely picked up on. Secondly, this is typically the opposite of how we see our laboring efforts in light of the Lord. When we think of how we're working and laboring, we think we're on our own. We just think ourselves as employees to God. And honestly, yes, <laughs> like that is true. I don't want to make it sound like you're, because uh, um, he is still the one that has given these mandates, the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, all these things. He has done all this. So, but he says we are co-workers 
with him. And, and, and we are co-workers in cultivating and making disciples. We are working alongside God. And why this is such a big deal is that it gives us ownership. This idea of working alongside God gives us ownership. It's not just, okay, this is, this is God's thing. No, we are, we are co-workers with God and we have ownership of what happens. We have ownership of the world that we are supposed to make something of. We have this world. We're supposed to do something of it. Cultivate in a way that for human flourishing and all this goodness and with creativity and intelligence, design, skills, emotion, strength, all of it. We're supposed to do all of it to cultivate the world. And we're supposed to take ownership of that. We're supposed to take ownership of this city. Take ownership of this town, of, of this neighborhood of Fishtown. Take ownership of our friends and our families and all this. Like, yes, God is the one who does a lot of this, but we are in it with him. We are co-workers. We are partners. And we are, have this divine calling to make image-bearing disciple-makers. And we, all, we do this knowing the truth that he is with us even until the end of the age. So you are uniquely placed and called. You are uniquely placed and called. Um, now, unfortunately, it doesn't end at verse 15. I wish it would just say, you know, he worked and he took care and he cultivated and Eden and the world was beautiful and it was great and everything worked out. We see in Genesis uh, 2, 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on that day uh, you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, I'm not going to go into these trees too much and what they stand for and what they mean because you can't really talk about them without talking about Genesis 3, uh, you know, the fall of man. So I don't know who's speaking on Genesis 3, but good luck. Um, but I do want to point out two aspects of God here. He gives man a choice. He gives man a choice. We aren't just some robots here at work. It's this, another idea of this, that we are co-workers with him. We are co-workers. If we're co-workers, then we have a choice. And two, it is out of God's goodness and mercy that he informs us of the consequences of our disobedience, which is death. It is out of God's goodness and mercy that he informs us of these consequences of disobedience. And I bring this up to essentially say, don't do it. Don't do it. Our lives are filled with the goodness and riches and beauty of Christ. It is filled with the riches of God in such an abundant way. Just how had Adam, he was in that garden, and it was full and abundant. Our lives are full and abundant, yet we sometimes feel this pull. There's this one thing. Do not touch it, or you will die. We feel this pull to it, but why not? Are you sure? I mean, everything else is good. Why isn't this good? But don't do it. God has shown to us again and again that he is faithful. He is faithful and he will continue to be faithful all the days of our lives. He has given us abundantly and he's going to continue to give. I mean, I, I, when I was telling uh, Drew earlier this week, I said, one of the things I learned is that, man, I was just full or surrounded by abundance. And that is the same as us. He has given and he's going to continue to give and continue to be faithful. He is the bread of life. 
He is the bread of life. He is the one our hearts desire, and he is the one who sustains us in all things, not, not the tree. He is the one that sustains us in all things. So while the temptation is there, don't touch. Don't touch, because you will die. We, our sinful nature naturally just gets lured to that. Don't touch. Don't do it. Because he has already proven faithful that he is the one who gives life and life to the full. So don't touch, but instead follow the one who has uniquely made you, who has uniquely valued you, who has uniquely placed you, and who has uniquely called you. For if he has not even withheld his own son from us, how much more should we trust him? I'm going to pray as the band comes up. um, And uh, I pray that we will be able to walk out of here understand that we are formed with value and that you, we are uniquely placed here for a moment as this in Fishtown, in Philly. We have a calling to cultivate this world, make something better of it for the people around us, but also to make other image bearers and disciples of Christ. Uh, Dearly Father, um, you are always so good, always. From the beginning of time, you are good. What you are making is good. Everything you say is good and precious and holy and glorious. Um, and to think that someone so mighty and powerful holds value in us, sees us as valuable, um, sometimes just really doesn't penetrate for some reason because it just seems so, so far off. Um, but Lord, I just pray that we would understand that we are valuable. And since we are valuable, you, you value us. You have placed us as your image bearer here in this world for a reason. We are your partners. We are working with you to make something new and beautiful and to bring on life in a way that you originally intended. So, Lord, I pray that as we walk out and we talk to our neighbors, we um, play with our kids, as we, you know, make coffee, as... Uh, we do all of these things. I pray as we work and cultivate that we would do it with you in mind and we would do it all for the glory of God because um, what we do matters and what we do is worship. So, Lord, I just pray that our life would, uh, would be worshiped to you. And we love you, Lord. We pray all this in your name.